Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss the practice of nurse midwifery and the benefits thereof with Dr. Ruth Lubick, a certified nurse midwife and the founder of the Family Health and Birth Center here in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Ruth. Welcome, David. Before I introduce Dr. Lubick, as always, some background. As shorter lives, poorer health, the recent IOM report, and the topic of my February interview with Stephen Wolf found, Americans experience comparatively high infant mortality rates as well as substantial disparities in infant mortality. The IOM report found among 17 comparable countries, the U.S. ranked last, and five of the 16 other countries had mortality rates less than half that of the U.S. Among 30 countries ranked by the OECD, the U.S. ranked 27th in infant mortality. Concerning disparities in infant mortality, the infant mortality rate for African-American infants is more than twice the rate as, it, as for non-Hispanic white infants. Specifically, in 2008, for non-Hispanic blacks, the mortality rate was almost 14 deaths per 1,000 births. For non-Hispanic whites, it was 5.6 per 1,000, and for all races, 6.7. Although the infant mortality rates have dropped overall for all races, the 2 to 1 black to white infant mortality ratio has not, never, dropped. Concerning the practice of midwifery, the Cochrane Collaborative, an international organization that publishes systematic reviews of clinical research found in its July 2009 synthesis report titled Midwife-Led Versus Other Models of Care for Childbearing Women, that midwife-led care confirms benefits for pregnant women and their babies and is recommended. Among other details, report noted, the main benefits to midwifery were a reduction in the use of regional analgesia with fewer epistemotomies or instrumental births. Midwife-led care also increased the women's chance of being cared for in a labor by a midwife she had got to know increased the chance of feeling in control during labor, having a spontaneous vaginal birth, and initiating breastfeeding. The review concluded that most women should be offered midwife-led models of care. Now let me introduce Dr. Lubick. Dr. Lubick's midwifery career began in the early 1960s when she was graduated from the country's first nurse midwifery program in New York City. In 1970, Dr. Lubick became general director of what became called the Childbirth Connection and opened its first state-licensed birthing center in the country in 1975. Eventually, the Morris Heights Childbearing Center opened in the South Bronx, bringing quality obstetric care to underserved, low-income women. Money she received from a MacArthur Foundation Genius Award enabled her to replicate her New York City midwifery model in 2000 by opening the Developing Family Centers in Washington, D.C., a participant of that, again, is the Family Health and Birth Center. Among other numerous credits and awards, Dr. Lubick was elected to the National Academy of Sciences Institute of Medicine and is the recipient of its Leinhardt Award. The American Academy of Nursing, also in 2011, named her a living legend. The American College of Nurse Midwives honored her with the Hattie Hemschelmeyer Award in 06. The American Public Health Association conferred its Martha May Elliott Award and she's also the recipient of eight honorary doctorate degrees. And that's in brief. Dr. Lubick was awarded a nursing degree from University of Pennsylvania, was graduated from Columbia University as well with a PhD in applied anthropology. 
So having said all that, uh, let's begin. Let me start uh, with the most basic question, Uh, Ruth. What is nurse midwifery care? Well, I think you've covered it very well, uh, David, in, in your introduction in the sense that Nurse midwifery care is, is it's a different model from obstetrics, and the two should be done together. They should be complementary. Um, <clears throat> nurse midwives do best with women anticipating a normal pregnancy and birth, but when nurse midwives care for women who are pregnant and uh, getting ready to birth, I think more of the births turn out to be uh, normal uh, in in uh, aspect, so but I have to always think in terms of what we're doing here in the district, because that's been I think the greatest success that uh, we have seen, and in, in what we're doing here in the district, we have focused on low income African American families, and so the 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 childbearing center, the family health and birth center was really based in a low-income area. But I want also to say that now that we have been successful in the sense of the the outcomes in the Family Health and Birth Center, both my colleague, uh, Dr. Linda Randolph, and I, she's a public health pediatrician, but we have the same vision, which is to see a redefinition of the word perinatal. <clears throat> right now, perinatal uh, is defined as the period from the 28th week of pregnancy until the fourth week of the child's life. And we see that, that this period, the perinatal period, and, its, and the care given in that period should begin, if possible, before conception, but certainly at conception, go through the, the pregnancy and childbearing period and on into the, the life of the, of the newborn and providing that child with early education, early, uh, early head start if you want. There, there are differences. I have to say that we have found many supports for this whole idea. Among them, uh, Michael Liu, who is the director now of the Maternal and Child Health Bureau of HRSA, and George Askew, who is the medical director of the, the Administration for Children and Families. And they both see this much longer period for <clears throat> the definition of the word perinatal. Um, so we're working on trying to get that done, and that's the policy effort that we have right now, that we would like to be able to convince the policymakers that this would be good for American uh, childbirth. It would do a lot for our outcomes, our standing in the world, but it would also do a lot for low-income families, families who are living in poverty. And in coming down, as you suggested, and in, in having gotten the MacArthur and having gotten a a bolus of money that enabled me to come down here and having been able to convince my husband for me to do this and we've had a commuting marriage ever since but having done all that it was to try to change the worst of the worst now when I have as long as I've been a midwife I have heard from 
my obstetrical compatriots, these outcomes that African-American people have are intractable. And they are not intractable, David. And we've proven that they're not intractable. Actually, there's a lot that's exciting happening right now. And it all comes out of the, what we've been able to show people, I think. I have to step back to the Bronx for a minute. Yes, let's go there. So we'll get to quality in the Family Health and Birth Center. But let's step back since I think it's worthwhile to discuss your early career and how accepted or not was midwifery uh, when you first started. When I finished uh, the midwifery program in 1962, there were no jobs for nurse midwives. And <clears throat> nurse midwives didn't even admit having that education in most instances. I remember going to uh, conventions of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and they had a subgroup, a nursing subgroup, which has spun off on its own now, but they would not even admit that there was such a thing as a nurse midwife. It, wa it wasn't until 1971 when uh, J. Robert Wilson, who had been the chair of obstetrics at Temple University in Philadelphia and also at the University of Michigan, he became president of the American College of OBGYN. And he was a person who saw the need for a different model of care for at least for normal pregnancies, if not for complicated ones. And uh, so he got ACOG to <clears throat> make, this, make a joint statement with the American College of Nurse Midwives concerning the existence of nurse midwives in this country. Because up until that time, if I went overseas and I would say I'm a nurse midwife, oh, I, I, you don't have those people in your country, do you? And I said, well, you're looking at one, you know, and so forth. So that was, that was a big step forward. And I'm fond of saying that for 40 years we wandered in the wilderness, which is a very uh, <clears throat> biblical thing to say, I guess. but. Um, the first school of nurse midwifery, which Maternity Center Association, now Childbirth Connections, uh, started in 1931. And they had big troubles getting it started. They tried to start a school which would just take women who were interested in being midwives, and that didn't work. The, the opposition of, of medicine uh, caused that to, to close down. So then uh, what happened was the, the woman who was the director of the association went to Europe, looked at different models, and came back convinced that, uh, and also having had uh, discussions with Mary Breckenridge of the Frontier Nursing Service, that the British model was the one which would work best for us. And at least for obstetricians in this country, they knew what nurses are. And so they were less inclined to be tentative or hesitant about, about that aspect of things. So that program was started in 1931, the school. Now, a school, a clinical school, needs clinical experience for its students. The only place that MCA could get clinical experience was in home birth. And it, in those years, most of the immigrants either from the South or from overseas, were used to home birth. And so 
they, and they had no funds, you know, to go to uh, any place different than that. So Maternity Center Association School had all its experience in home birth in Central Harlem and East Harlem from 1931 until 1959 when the school moved into Kings County Hospital in Brooklyn, which is part of the, the Health and Hospitals Corporation. Now, the, the reason that the school was able to move into Kings County Hospital was because uh, Dr. Lewis Hellman, who was like Mr. Obstetrics in those days, took, took the school in, but he needed the midwives. He needed the midwives, and uh, he was working in a plant, Kings County Hospital at that time, had been built to accommodate 3,500 births a year, and he was seeing 7,500 women come for care. So <clears throat> he needed hands to help provide the care, and and he he. But he also had an interest in uh, midwifery because he had he was a, a mentee of Dr. Nicholson Eastman, who wrote the book on obstetrics in those years, and and Eastman was at uh, Hopkins, and that's where. Uh, Dr. Hellman also got his uh, education. So he took us in, but he suffered for that. He, he was roundly criticized by his colleagues. And one of the most important things in my career, David, that, that happened to me, that set me on a certain path, was going to obstetrical rounds when I was a new student and hearing Dr. Hellman present the outcomes of the midwives who had, I started in 61, the, the school moved into Kings County in 59, so they had two years of experience. And Dr. Hellman was presenting the, the positive outcomes that the midwives had had. And uh, <clears throat> there was a lot of shuffling of feet, you know, and clearing of the throat and so forth by the audience. Because in those days also, the, uh, the, the obstetricians working in the community who were mostly private practice. They weren't bringing their women to birth at Kings County Hospital, but they were expected to come in and help to uh, supervise the resident physicians there at, at Kings County in, uh, in the um, prenatal. They, they weren't on the labor and delivery floor, but they did, they supervised them in prenatal care. But one of those physicians put up his hand after the presentation was made by Dr. Hellman and said, and what are you saving? Material for the welfare rolls. And that's the way a lot of physicians looked at women and babies and families. They were material. They were teaching material. And, and that really aggravated me and uh, it stayed with me and I always was trying to think of a way to make make the case for what I had been taught which was to treat women as partners in their care and to help them to be uh, better mothers to have stronger families and so forth and one of the things that I think, because we've seen those outcomes here in the district, in a low-income area, Ward 5, but one of the things that, that uh, 
I think about that, especially with the ad- addition of the early childhood, is I think, and I hope that somebody will begin to study it. We don't have the money to do that right now, but I hope somebody will begin to study it. I would be willing to place a little money on the fact that with an extensive program such as we have, with a redefined perinatal period, we will see fewer African-American young men incarcerated. So not only will we save money for the system as we do by the, the, uh, the charges that midwifery care encounters, but we would also save a lot of money for the whole social system if we could see young black men feel good about themselves and feel that they could get ahead without having to resort to um, criminal activity. But be more involved in their child's uh, uh, care, mm-hmm. birthing, mm-hmm. pregnancy, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. L- let me ask, before we go into the outcomes again on FHBC, there's a, a footnote I'd like to ask. When you ran the clinic in the South Bronx, you had some, correct me if I'm wrong, pretty famous, uh, not then, but later, board members, correct? Well, um, no, I think our, our board members at MCA were always people who were from, if you will, a social class which was more comfortable financially. Um, I remember very well Mrs. Uh, Rothschild, Walter N. Rothschild, whose, whose first name was Carola. And uh, I remember when we were trying to set up the birth center too. Now here comes Dr. Hellman again. Dr. Hellman, who is now passed, but um, <clears throat> when we were trying to set up the birth center, Maternity Center Association had a medical advisory board, and Dr. Hellman was very instrumental on that board. He was not the chair. The chair was R. Gordon Douglas, who was the chief of OB at Cornell, and, and he was a Scotsman, and he'd been educated with nurse midwives in Scotland, so he had no trouble with the uh, Midwives, but what we what we needed to do was be sure that the medical advisory board knew what we were thinking about because we investigated how can we um, set up a service that's more enticing to young middle class families, which are most of that's where we were we were situated. We were situated on Carnegie Hill, and we ran. Um, education classes, prenatal education, preparation for childbirth. But the people that we saw were, I would describe them as middle class. So, lost it. So you're, I was trying to get you to note your, your few of your board members who are now oh, right, subsequently. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so the board members were, um, were all women at that time and all women who came out of, of some very, very important socialite background. And they were able to help us in the sense that uh, we went to the health department of the state to get permission to set this, uh, when we had it designed, to get it set up. That was one thing we did. But, th- but the important thing that I started to talk about was we had to get the... Um, this whole plan before the medical advisory board. And we went there and we said, this is what we'd like to do. And the, the board said, 
well, um, I doubt that you'll be able to get it done, but um, yeah, yeah, I'll go ahead and try. And so we did. <clears throat> we went ahead, we did the certificate of need and so forth. And uh, But when we actually got permission to establish on a temporary basis this childbearing center, it was called, then there was a lot of ferment on the medical board. And something like 10 members of the medical advisory board resigned the board. And I went to see Mrs. Rothschild about that. She was no longer president. Her, her daughter was about to become president, Phyllis Farley. But I, I you know, what am I going to do? Dr. Hellman has walked out, you know, and he's taken a whole bunch of the medical advisory board with him. So I went to, uh, I called Mrs. Rothschild and said, I have something really important we need to talk to you about. So I went with her daughter and a couple of other board members. And uh, she always did things over the tea table. And so we went to her apartment and uh, we went in and the, the maid was serving tea or was bringing in the, the, the tea service. And I sat down on a straight back chair with papers on my lap and just fairly shaking because of this terrible thing that had happened. I destroyed the, the medical advisory board. And she, she said, well, Ruth, what brings you here today? So I said, well, you know, the, we've had some difficulties with our plan for an out-of-hospital birth center for normal pregnancy and birth in connection with the total community, you know, with the obstetrical community and so forth. And uh, Dr. Hellman has... Uh, has decided to leave the board, and he's taken a number of people with him. And all this while, she was pouring tea. And she looked up at me and she said, what do you take in your tea? And I said, well, I take sugar in my tea. <laughs> but, but I couldn't believe that she wasn't shocked. And then she looked at me a little bit later and said, they'll be back. And that was all it meant to her. She was completely unfazed by the authority of the medical profession. And when I did my dissertation, David, it was, it was called Barriers and Conflict in Maternity Care Innovation. There's a whole section in there on authority versus evidence. And in those days, the, the obstetrical um, group would authorize things based on their own experience and not on evidence from study. And now, today, you hear so much about evidence-based care. And so it's, it's uh, I think we're going to see some very interesting uh, months coming, coming along. Let, let's go to that, but this is the phrase today as evidence-based care versus eminence-based care. Uh, the point you made. Let's go to uh, the clinical evidence and again uh, the results obtained by the local family health and birth center. So first um, you talk about FHBC's care in, in a social context. So if you can comment on that and then let's go specifically to <clears throat> issues of cost and quality relative to outcomes. I think that um, the the let, let me start out by saying we did not have the funding to really set up 
a research design. We got we did raise money to make a research design, but we were never able to raise the money to put that into effect. Now we have what we have is called the Developing Family Center. Family Health and Birth Center is one partner, uh, an organization that did uh, social supports and education, things like um, a course for the expectant parents called uh, Confident Parenting, um, men's groups, and, and all kinds of social supports like that, home visiting, and then uh, early childhood development, all in the same building. So That's uh, the social context. Right. When we talk about um, the Family Health and Birth Center, it's, it's the glue that holds everything together, but it's not more important than, than either of the other two. And the reason that we have early childhood education is because, you know, when you get a MacArthur, David, there, there are a lot of doors open to you. And one of the doors that opened to me was, came from the French American Foundation and an invitation to go to France for two weeks with a study group to look at the protection maternelle et infantile. That's what the French call their system, protection of mothers and babies. Not aid to or assistance for, but protection of. So when I came down to Washington and I began uh, looking around for, for partners um, to, to get this idea out um, and for places because we didn't have anything, we didn't have a building or anything, and one of the um, one of the partners at that time it was Healthy Babies Project, the the leader of that, Dolores Farr, said to me, "I know where there's a building because I had said to her, Dolores, I don't, I don't know where we're going to put this. I had shown her a film that we made in the Bronx, and she was very impressed with that. So she said, I'm going to show you a building, and so she took me around and showed me." what the community called the old Safeway, which was a Safeway supermarket, which had been abandoned at the time of the riots after Martin Luther King's mm. death, and uh, had been sitting there derelict, which the Heckingers, the Heckinger family owned. And, uh, and that's what we got. Mr. Heckinger actually convinced his other family members to give us that property, and then we raised the money to renovate it. But... Um, it was, it was an important um, aspect of what we were doing, and it enabled us to change the pattern of maternity care. And, and I'm very grateful that we were able to include the social supports and include the, the early childhood education. And for me, David, in my career, you know, I'm 86 years old, so much of what has happened has just been serendipitous like it's serendipitous that I got to go to France. I would never have thought about early childhood development in the same building had I not gone to France and seen all the forms of, of child care that they have. Let's, let's try to get some uh, time in to discuss the outcomes, which are very okay. important for the Family mm -hmm. Health and Birth Center. So you, you have been very successful in full-term births, fewer C-sections. Can you discuss those? What we've been able to do, and I have to start out by apologizing because we don't know what our infant mortality is. We have not had the funding to really follow the families through the child's first year of life, and you, you, you should do that. 
to in order to come out with statements about that. But what so what we have focused on is reducing preterm birth and reducing low birth weight, which are the two major precursors to infant mortality. And we've been able to reduce preterm birth by two thirds as compared to the the African American population as a whole. Our population it has two thirds fewer preterm births. And um, and also three by three quarters we've reduced low birth weight, and then we kept track of cesarean section and we reduced that by two thirds as well. What I did then was take a um, a model <laughs> and um, use some um, proxies, like for preterm birth, in in a study done by the Institute of Medicine. Preterm birth is is estimated to cost every one every preterm birth costs fifty one thousand six hundred dollars. Now that's just for the the baby being born and staying in neonatal intensive care. That's not the lifetime effort that goes into keeping kids who have been neurologically damaged and or so learning forth. disabilities, etc. Right. right. So there was there was that. And then um, for the uh, low birth weight, I used a proxy from the Environmental Protection Agency has a publication that they put out called The Costs of Illness. And so I used what their their, uh, estimation was to figure how much was saved by those lower preterm births. And then I couldn't find, you know, because it's interesting, but you can't find out how much... um, Cesarean section is is being reimbursed because it's different from hospital to hospital, and the reimbursement agencies don't want to tell you what mm-hmm. Hospital X is getting because Hospital Y will say, "Well, I'm why why aren't we getting that too?" But uh, at any rate, one at one time, and this is these are all 2006 numbers, and I'm using 2006 numbers because in that year, virtually our our entire population was black. Since that time, um, more middle class, Caucasian, and people of other origins have been coming to see us, although there's still only about, I think, about um, 15%. But anyway, the, the, po- the populations that I was talking about was all African American. So um, when you figured that out, use the proxy, and, and did the extensions on that. In that year, we saved $1,600,000 for the system. And in that year, $1,600,000 was more than our operating budget. But we could not get our operating budget from Medicaid managed care. We could only get what they would contract for, and they wouldn't give us more than half our charges. And uh, our charges represented our costs as nearly as we could could figure them. So we've had to struggle all that period of time. And, and in the meantime, the managed care companies walk off with the money that, we, that we're saving the system. And you went further in your analysis and guesstimated what it would save if you had similar outcomes nationwide, what the savings would be. Nationwide. Yeah, well, I, I took a, a flyer at that, and I'm no mathematician, but anywhere from 40 to 60% of the births in this country are covered by Medicaid. 
And uh, so, right, it's about half. Yeah. So I assumed that, and and so I projected what it would save if all Medicaid-covered births were were uh, cared for on our model and had the same outcomes as you did. Yes. And assuming that they would, right. you know, and uh, and that would have uh, saved probably two billion dollars, something like that, as far as my figuring okay. is concerned. Okay. Um, I should make note of cesarean sections. Uh, there was a report out yesterday. Uh, they can vary tenfold from seven to seventy percent, and even for low-risk pregnancies, they can vary from two to thirty-six percent. So, generally speaking, beyond the variation, C-sections are are generally understood to be way over um, performed. We have time, lastly, for uh, a federal initiative under Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or uh, the Innovation Center at CMS, and this is called the Strong Start Initiative that in February 12 was actually announced by the Secretary at the Family Health and Birth Center facility. And just this past month, they made 27 awards under this Strong Start Initiative, which is to reduce preterm or births uh, shorter than 39 weeks. So can you make comment about the Strong Start Initiative? Well, the, the American Association of Birth Centers got one of those awards. <clears throat> there are now about 280 birth centers operating in the country. Most of them serve middle-class families because they're the ones that speak up and say, I'm not going back to that hospital. I don't want to take the risk of having an unnecessary cesarean section. So, um, but the award that the American Association of Birth Centers was given was more than $5 million over a four-year period to enable them to assist 47 birth centers in 22 states to serve Medicaid-eligible families and to, and to have their, their outcomes studied along with that. So I have no doubt that, it's the, it, that the same outcomes will be achieved because the, the, the rocket science, David, that we use, that we midwives use, is making relationships with the women. It's nothing more than that, really. And when you help a woman achieve some self-esteem, it's just amazing what happens with, with them and how, you know, they really want to take charge of their health, but they've never been shown how to do it. And they've always uh, not had the opportunity but the, but the midwives and the breastfeeding peer counselors and, and the others who participate in the, um, in the programs that would uh, enable the women to feel good for themselves, what's often called centering pregnancy, but uh, we always just called it group care. So the women meet together in groups, and they can share their own experiences. And some of them are having a second baby or a third baby, and some of them are having a first baby. But uh, there's not an authoritative, this is what you need to do. There is, now let's talk about backache and pregnancy. How do you take care of your backache, Louise? And maybe somebody else would like to to put in for that. And then we'll talk to you about what we can do to help you with your backache. And it's, it's going to be a few simple exercises, but first we want to know what you think about it. So and it's empowering. Mm-hmm.
It is very empowering. Okay, unfortunately, Ruth, I'm sorry to say we're at our time boundary. And with that, I'll have to say thank you for your time again. We're very appreciative. Well, I'm appreciative of being asked. Thank you.